Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... So you're saying that you can't just get this out of the way in one fell swoop and get it over with? No, it's definitely not like one and done conversation. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by April Redlinger, Executive Director of Canavox. April, thank you for joining us. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. I joined in 2014 and I came from 16 years of practicing law. I had recently taken a break to stay at home with my young children because I had two little girls at the time. And Canafox had actually started in 2013. They started out this reading group model and weren't sure how it was going to work out. They knew they had the right idea and the right materials. They just wanted to see, like, what was the public going to think about this? Were people going to catch on to this idea of talking about all of these topics uh, regarding marriage and sexual integrity in a reading group format. And after that first year, they realized like, well, this is really great. We have something here. We need to grow and expand. And I had previously been connected with the Witherspoon Institute, which Canavox is a project of the Witherspoon Institute. They found out that I had recently stopped practicing law and asked me if I would come on board and help them grow the Canavox uh, network which I happily said, yes, I was like, who, I can't believe someone's doing this. This is so amazing. And absolutely. I'm happy to be part of it. That was your happy escape from the legal profession. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, although it was funny because I said, you know, I just stopped working, practicing law so I could stay at home and be with my family. And they said, no, no, this is, this is about family. This is a family friendly organization. You know, that's what we're promoting. So no, you can do this. And I said, yes, this is great. And today, April is joining us to talk about the talk, also known as how to talk about sex with your son or daughter, which is something that parents either do or maybe sometimes lapse and would rather not do. Uh, Is that your experience as well with parents? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think we get both types of parents. We get some parents who really want to talk about it and they're very eager. And then we also get some parents who are like, oh, do I have to do this? You know, I guess, of course, we get some who are sort of in between. But I think part of that comes from one, the fact that, you know, maybe that parent didn't have such a good experience with their parents when they were young talking about sex or maybe they had no experience or they it could just be it's an uncomfortable sometimes they are uncomfortable topics and they don't know what to say right because they may not have because they didn't have that good experience with their own parents or the information it's hard for them to have that conversation and relay that information to their kids so what we're trying to do here at Canavox with this session that we have on sex education and the family we call it is to give parents some resources to help them become the experts on these topics and so they can relay the information to their kids. That can be tough when a parent has had a bad experience or a lack of experience talking about it with their own parents, because it can tend to, I think, become a cycle. Like my dad asked me when I was about that age, like, do you want to talk about it? I said, nope, not right now. And he never returned to it (laughs) because, you know, fathers and sons, you know, and I've definitely talked to like my friends about their experiences. You don't get it from your parents. So you just kind of piece it together from what you get in the culture. And that can have very mixed results because it depends on which parts of the culture you're frequenting. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have the same experience with my parents. I think my mom just handed me this like book. And, you know, I got some, I was in public school in the, you know, 70s and 80s. And I got some, you know, sex education. It wasn't called that then. It was a biology class. 
And I got some information there, but to not like bash our parents, they weren't dealing with the same things we're facing. They weren't dealing with the same obstacles we're facing today. Right. right? Yeah. They grew up, they grew up in a time where it wasn't such a sex saturated culture, right? It wasn't everywhere you go. At least my parents, you know, they didn't have the talk with their parents, but their, their parents weren't facing the fallout from the sexual revolution. You know, that kind of came after, I think our generation was really the one, or at least mine, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but mine was the one really facing that right after in the seventies, you know, facing what was happening, the over-sexualization in the culture. And so nowadays parents, they really have to get to their kids first because it's just everywhere. I mean, it's just gotten progressively worse over the past 20 years. So we're just dealing with something that's so much different than what our parents had dealt with. So it's even more important now that we actually jump in there and have conversations with our kids. And have you noticed that there's a hunger for this, for what Canavox offers in this area? Oh yeah, oh my gosh. So I will say this tip booklet that we put out back in February of 2020, right before the pandemic actually <laughs> hit, <laughs> we, were do- we just actually got it published and we were doing a, um, an event at- in Chicago the week before everything got shut down. So, but, it, but it's been actually been doing remarkably well and uh, we have it available on Amazon and we sell bulk orders for, you know, different organizations and whatnot, but we have been getting so many people who see this as just like a nice short resource to help them get them started, right? This isn't like the end all be all it doesn't have everything you need in here, but it gives you some practical advice on how to talk to your kids throughout the different times during their childhood going through the ages of two to four up until 18. And so this has been very helpful. The book is called Tips for Talking to Your Kids About Sex. Great. And we'll have a link to that in the episode notes as well. And even with this, parents have been reaching out to us for more. They want additional resources. And recently, Canavox, which just started out as reading groups for adults, added two additional program areas. So we have our reading groups, Canavox Pro, which is for mostly parents. And then we have Canavox Varsity, which is for college students and graduate students and young professionals. And then our third and most recent program is Canavox JV. Now Canavox JV is a program that's geared towards middle school and high school students. It's really a program for students, but with parent involvement in it. So it just gives them an additional level of resource to help their kids learn about these really important topics. And that's great that you don't just address the kids in isolation. It's meant to partner with the parents so that you're not just forming the kids, but you're helping the parents form their kids themselves. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. At Canavox, it's our belief that the parents are the primary educators of their children. We don't want to come in and take over that role. We don't think we can do it better. We think there's nothing more important than that parent-child relationship. And we just want to help the parents in any way we can to be able to open the lines of communication and and help educate them about the information too. Because sometimes parents are just like, I don't know. I don't don't know about this topic enough. Mm -hmm. But to help them put it all together. And we are a resource. We don't want to come in. You know, we see sex ed programs around the country come in and are trying to take that role away from the parents and have an agenda. That's not what we're aiming to do. We, We want to work with parents. Yeah. And that's a great point because I was reading some of the tips that are featured in your book and a large number of them are dependent on the particular situation. So which examples can you draw from in the experience of your kid in explaining to them this or that 
aspect of it. And which rules about dating for high schoolers might be appropriate for your kid's situation because it's not absolutely applicable across the board. You may trust your son's girlfriend's parents enough that you're okay with them being over their house, or you may not. But the parents are the ones who are best equipped to make that decision and in your resources that you really keep that front of mind. Yeah, absolutely. There is no one size fits all approach. Yeah. Kids are all different, right? You can have a 15 year old son and a 15 year old daughter and they may approach things completely differently. And of course, you know, they're boys and girls. And so they're going to see things differently based on, you know, their maturation and their hormones mm -hmm. and all of that great stuff that's happening to them as they're going through puberty. And so you really have to look at some broad guidelines when you're having these conversations. I mean, I think sometimes there's a tendency for people to say, well, tell me what to say. What do I say exactly? Well, we can't do that. Although we do give a few examples in the books of things that you can say, but it's up to you as the parent to get in there and think about it and do that hard work that needs to be done. Really, the one of the best things I think we can actually say to parents, and there's a, a book on our reading list that's in that session, that sex ed in the family session, and it's called You're Teaching My Child What? And in that chapter three, one of the things that Dr. Grossman really talks about is the importance of the parent-child relationship and how with outcomes of for kids and their sexual activity, the biggest influencer on what they choose to do is their parents. Their parents have such a profound impact on how kids approach things. And no one should ever overlook that. And that's why it's just so important for you to have that communication with your child. That's the most important part, really, to have open communication with your child and often. Yeah. And it's really about any topic, but in particular this one, because it's so sensitive. So you're saying that you can't just get this out of the way in one fell swoop and get it over with? No, it's definitely not like one and done conversation. These are conversations that you have to have, you know, starting at an early age in an age appropriate manner, but then continuously over time. Mm -hmm. And even when there's times when, like I know myself, I may bring it up and talk about it with my kids. I'll bring up a topic and they'll say, oh, do we have to talk about this now? And I say, yeah, we, we actually do. And we're going to. And so sometimes the conversations may be a little bit stressful like that. But then other times they flow nicely. The kids will bring up the topic and we'll be cooking dinner or we'll be driving in the car to, you know, a soccer game, whatnot. And something comes up or I personally like to take the approach of, you know, if something comes up at school or something happens. I'll say, oh, so did that, you know, what happened there or how did that happen or what do you think about that? And I ask a lot of questions. You can get a lot of information from your kids that way. And then you can also give a lot of information that way to them without it being like a lecture, because you really want this conversation, like you said, not to be that, not a one-time lecture, I should say, because you don't really want to lecture, you want to make it conversational, you want to keep it conversational. And, you know, when you have conversations with people, it's, you know, something goes back and forth, and you do it over and over again. And you're just, you know, you're establishing a relationship about these particular topics. Would you say that only the parent of the same sex needs to have these conversations with their kids? For instance, your son, really his father can get the job done? Or would you say that the mother would also have to talk to her son or vice versa, a father would have to talk to his daughter as well? Yeah, so that's a great question. Our philosophy really is that both parents bring something so special to the table when it comes to raising children. And that also goes along with talking to your kids about sex. 
there are so many things that, you know, a mom talking to her daughter, it'll be really important that moms talk to their daughters about, right? Like getting a regular period and things that they Mm -hmm. can relate to as women. But dad can bring so many other important things to the table, right? When talking to daughters about dating and helping daughters understand where young men are coming from when they're looking to date them, right? That's so important. They can tell them, hey, you know, boys are filled with hormones and they're excited to be going out with girls. These are things you need to think or, you know, you need to think about or understand in your interactions with young men, right? Regarding flirtation and how you interact with young men. You need to have be aware of those things. And really no one's better than dad to help explain that to a daughter, right? Because he's been yeah. there. He's understand that. And the same thing goes with mom, right? With young boys. Mm-hmm. Mom also can bring some really great advice to young boys about sex. Now there'll be some things again, like probably just dad needs to talk about her mom, but kids need both a mom and dad. And this is why they both bring great things to the table that are different, but important. Yeah, that's a great point. And mom can explain where the son's girlfriend might be coming from, you know, what what might be going through her mind, that kind of thing, which teenage boys are not typically known for being able to figure out on their own. Yeah, especially if they don't have any sisters, you know, who can help explain it to them. There's another tip about dating that I saw in what you sent me, that when you lay ground rules for dating early on, you get ahead of a particular boyfriend or girlfriend, so you don't make it seem like you're making rules just so you're forbidding contact with that person. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's so key. That really is so key because you don't want, maybe for whatever reason, mom or dad might not like that particular boyfriend or girlfriend, but if you have those rules established in advance, it would be for anybody, regardless of whether parents are sort of fond of the the choice. So it just makes it all neutral, right? You keep a, a neutral playing field for everybody, which is great and setting that up for teens. But I also think it's, I think teens like it as well, because even though they push back against rules, sometimes I think they do like to have that clear expectations. Yeah. They have the clear expectations and the clear boundaries, you know, to a certain extent, you don't need to explain your boundaries, but If you can do that, I think it is helpful as well. There's certain things that you want to explain why, you know, like the four hour period, or we had one, one of our leaders say something like, well, nothing good can happen after 11 o'clock at night. So, you know, (laughs) you need to keep it early. It doesn't need to be all hours of the night. Again, when you, when you, if you're having these conversations with your kids from an early age, they're going to know how you feel about these things. And it's really important to share with your kids like your thoughts on all of this early on, because they'll know, right? If you're talking to them about this, you know, starting two and four and six and eight and 12, they're going to know where you come from and they'll understand the boundaries and why they're there. So you won't need to do that much explanation, but they're teenagers. So they do give pushback from time to time. (laughs) Yeah. I noticed, I I didn't see anywhere in Canavox anything about storks (laughs) dropping off bundles of joy. You know, it seems like there's a very clear continuum and there's no tooth fairy portion. of No, this, right? yeah. no. We, we want to be honest with the kids in an age appropriate way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And each kid, some kids are different. Like I even I have a four year old and the other day he asked me a question about, you know, having a baby and and he's the youngest. So the other ones, it's always great, actually, when you're a parent and you can you have a friend or someone else who's having a baby and you can explain you can use that you know, circumstance to help you with your conversations, right? Like always, mm-hmm. that's a, a key thing, like always find practical examples in your life that you can go to 
um, help explain some of these things. Like that's what I sort of mentioned earlier about you know, if something happens at school, you take it as an opportunity to talk about things further. But like having a friend or a family member who's pregnant can be great. But my, my four-year-old asked, you know, when you have a baby, does your stomach just explode? So of course that's, he has a boy and this is where he's thinking, right? Like my girls never asked me that question. <laughs> they kind of thought certain things. And one said, I thought you had to get it cut out. And, you know, for a while she said, I didn't want to have, oh, I don't want to have babies because I really don't want anybody cutting my stomach. And I thought, so I took that as an opportunity to have the conversation and some kids ask a little bit more. So you need to give a little bit more information. But my four-year-old, when I told him like, no, your stomach doesn't explode you know, there's a special place where the baby comes out of. He was good with that. And so I just left it there because you want to try to gauge how much information you need to give them at the time. Now, again, we'll have this conversation, I'm sure in another year or two, but in a different level, you just got to try to really gauge, use your best parenting instincts and gauge whether or not you need to give a little bit more or a little bit less, but always truthful, right? And never fake things just for the sake of giving it an answer to get out of it you'll have a lot of uncomfortable conversations. There's no doubt. Sure. <laughs> like some things will just be weird. Just accept it up front. That's part of the deal. Yeah, it's okay. And and your parents too. And like, and not everybody's going to be perfect. And you may say things that you think, oh, I wish I didn't say that. But, you know, you can make up for it later. And maybe you'll have a little laugh about it. Like me and my kids, we do. And we say like, remember when you told me, you know, we talked about the <laughs> cutting the stomach and, and things like that. But you try your best. And that's why we give you, you know, parents tools like this to, to help them get through those conversations because they will be they will be difficult not not everyone but there there'll be some awkward ones no matter what my my daughter actually said this to me yesterday something about she was running in a, a cross country they had a cross country meet over the weekend and this is really tough course mm-hmm. and she said that her coach said running this course is only second to childbirth oh okay and my daughter was like is it really that bad <laughs> and i said the moment it is, but then you forget and you have this beautiful baby. So you know, like, it's not that big of a deal. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I think there's two things men will never understand. One is the pain of childbirth. And the other is how women can look back on childbirth and not be completely, utterly traumatized. By it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I think you mentioned before, when we were talking before this recording, that the settings that are typically conducive to that kind of conversational mode are generally, like you just said, when you're driving somewhere or when you're cooking dinner or washing dishes or something like that, right? Each of you has some other activity to focus on, so it's not this unmediated face-to-face. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that helps so much. Not to say that there's never a time where you have to sit down and talk to your kid about something, you know, if something happens and it's really heavy and, you know, it could be a potentially dangerous situation for your child, you should always feel like you can sit down and say, hey, yeah, we have to talk about this. But generally, as you're you're trying to approach your kids on these topics and you're trying to get to them first and give them information, I think it really works better to approach it in a more casual manner. Be casual, ask a lot of questions, see what they know first about some of the topics, you know, especially as you're dealing with younger kids, like pornography. I mean, unfortunately, we know that studies show us that kids, uh, the first time they come in contact with pornography is at the age of 11. It may actually be even earlier these days, but a couple of years ago, it was the first time kids see pornography is tends to be around the age of 11. You know, that's a topic when you want to tell them about or teach them about the harms of pornography and why it's it's not good that you may ask them, do they know what it is first or have they heard that term? Yeah. And then okay. you can go get into it more. 
maybe switching gears a little bit. Some people are critical of this angle of talking about the birds and the bees because it's not quote-unquote sex positive, which I personally disagree with because everything that we have to say about sex is very positive. Uh, it's just not positive in all circumstances, regardless of the relationship of the man and the woman. But when they're critical of this sort of approach, I think they tend to lump this in with purity culture, which they may have more of an experience with, especially if they're from some other Christian backgrounds that talk about sex in a bit of a different way. Have you had uh, any encounter with uh, with purity culture kind of apart from this? Only to the extent that we sort of distinguish ourselves from it in, in several different ways. One being, so Canavox is not a faith-based organization. <laughs> While many of our participants and organizers and founders are, are all people of faith, all of our materials are based on natural law, social science, economics. We actually have a great session for the kids in the JV group where we use some information on the like, economics of sex, we call it. And there's a, a great video we have in our actually adult syllabus, but it's sort of referenced in our, our youth syllabus. We come at it from a different perspective. And I would say that if you you know look at any of our materials, one thing we are at Canavox is sex positive. It's just not sex, anything goes sex. It's such a troublesome term because sex positive sounds like, oh, well, I like sex. Therefore, I'm going to agree with whatever the people are saying or using those words. But like, you can't get more positive about sex than what you guys say about it. Yeah. For us, you know, sex is a gift. It's a gift of self. And right. it's, it's a beautiful blessing that we have. And it brings people together. The chemical reactions that happen during sex bind men and women together in marriage. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And of course, there's the procreative effect of it, right? Bringing life into the world. So we are all for it. You know, we want to help parents be able to educate their children on all of the beauty of it. But also when it's used outside of marriage, what are the downfalls and what can happen? What are the negative consequences to just sex on demand in any occasion, right? And especially with young people when they're not right. in a married relationship. And I think this is where at least I've seen purity culture enter in and provide a different kind of distorted view that can make impressionable teenagers feel guilty or corrupt because they experience a sexual dimension to their lives. And as a result, it can, while the end practical recommendation, don't have sex before marriage, is good, the reasoning to get there can maybe cause unintended side issues in a person's psyche. I think maybe part of it is because there's, and I don't know enough about the purity culture like rationale, but I don't, like we try to go through the explanations of why this normal reactions in young men and young women, right, to feel like attracted to the opposite sex and to want to engage in sexual activities with the opposite sex. You know, that's like a natural, beautiful thing. And yeah. we, we like to explain it and tell them the reasons why behind it. And we help parents understand that too. I don't know, like with the purity culture, is it's just no, we won't do this, you know, a black and white yes or no kind of thing, right? The end message for us is wait until marriage to engage in sexual activity. But we want them to realize like the thoughts and the feelings that they have leading up to that, they're all normal and natural and beautiful and wonderful. And it right. just, when it comes together in marriage, it's fantastic, right? It can be mind blowing. So we want to help them understand that what they're feeling is normal and natural and that they shouldn't feel shameful about it. Yeah. Right. There's no there's no shame involved. But the other thing that we also encourage that I think is different than the purity culture is um, dating. Like dating is a very important aspect of what we teach at Canavox. And it's why why it's so important 
to have this casual dating with, without sexual activity, of course, right? And people sometimes nowadays think like dating and, and sexual activity are sort of go hand in hand. That's not what we mean. We're getting actually ready to create a new resource on dating for teens, but also it will be information for parents as well. We have some of that. Well, in our varsity session for college students and graduate students and young professionals, we do have a session on dating because we found that it's funny that, and we've heard from a variety of uh, sources and you, you may have heard this as well, but like dating is just, no one's doing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the hookup culture. And that's it. There's no dating. Right. Our thought, goal is to bring back dating. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the four hour rule was a good point that was in, in one of the tips that I saw. Because you say at one point, the four hour rule, a teen should be able to accomplish all the socializing he needs in four hours. Instead of these long drop me off at four, pick me up at 11 hangouts. Oh. Teens should figure out how to use their time wisely. And Absolutely. That, that made perfect sense. Like a baseball game lasts less than four hours. So you should definitely be able to spend some quality time together in that time. Well, it depends time. who's playing. It depends who's playing, Andrew, in that baseball game, whether it lasts. We had some long ones at the end of this uh, baseball season, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. There are definitely some teams that are uh, more more inclined to play longer games than others. Yeah, but no, the four hour rule. And again, that, it, like you said, these are sort of some broad rules. You know, some parents may say it's three hours, some may give it another hour or so, but that's generally a good, you know, rule of thumb to be thinking about, right? You can accomplish all you need to in those, that time frame. Right. But another thing in that other book that I mentioned that's on our syllabus, that Miriam Grossman book, that chapter three, Red Light, mm -hmm. Green Light, she talks again about the role of parents being so important in, you know, monitoring your kids and not sort of just saying, hey, at a certain age, let them go do whatever they want. Be present, be there for your kids, be involved. Again, this goes back to the relationship and communication with your children, which is the most important. And it can have such a huge effect on what they ultimately decide to do with regard to sexual activity and at what age. She says that one of the important things that you need to remember too, is to make sure your kids understand that it's not mistrust of them, but that it's your caring and wanting to protect them. Because we know that, you know, until kids are 25, their prefrontal cortex has not developed fully. And so that parent needs to step in there and be the prefrontal cortex for those kids and help them and, and help protect them. Like that's our job as parents to do that, right? To jump in when we know our kids aren't able or mature enough to be able to make decisions like that, like, you know, certain decisions. But it's, and it's funny too, in that book, she also goes on and talks about, there's this push out in the culture to have kids engage in sexual activity at a younger and younger age. And it's just interesting because we know that that area of the brain is not fully developed yet, you know, to make sound rational judgments. And so what we're trying to do is, again, this, we, we provide this information for parents so that they can understand all of the reasoning behind what our suggestions that we make, but just to help them understand their role as parents, it's so important and it it's just can have such a tremendous effect. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise when you know, you're a parent and don't let other people take away that right to be the primary educator of your child, right? It's, it's up to us as parents to be able to get in there and teach our kids. Yeah. And that's such a tough cultural trend with kids being sexualized younger and younger. But on the flip side, adults entering into stable relationships later and later. So it's sort of like childhood ends sooner, but adulthood starts later. And in between, there's this expanding, nebulous, I don't know what I am area. That's such a good point. That's why we need parents to step in as the adults and say, mm -hmm. hey, let's hold on here. 
these are what the studies show. This shows us what's the best way for a, you know, a young person to thrive or flourish and how can we help them? What can we do since we're the ones who one had the experience that we can also share whether good or bad, right? That's another thing to remember. Um, as parents, we know the world isn't perfect. Not everybody comes from perfect circumstance, right? People have got a lot of different things from their past and that they may wish they have done differently. But these can all be helpful lessons that we can not necessarily share all the, the nitty gritty, the details with our kids, but let them know, you know, people do make mistakes and people do fail. And we can always recover from those right. and pick up, right? So we always want to make sure kids know that because that kind of goes, again, I don't want to say too, too much about the purity culture in this respect, because I'm not sure if this is the case, but, you know, we don't want to guilt kids and we don't want to make them feel bad and feel like they can never pick back up if they stumble, right? Get back up after they stumble. Right. Everyone deserves a second chance, no matter what they do. So we do our best to try to educate them on all the perspectives and then, you know, help walk them through it. Right. Exactly. That is one reason why I've seen people complain about purity culture a lot is because there's this understanding that if you fall, you're worth less, you know, you're tainted forever. You know, people make mistakes, right? Yeah. As we're teaching this too, we have to remember that because our kids can hear something different mm -hmm. as we're saying these things. So we just always have to be mindful of that ourselves as parents. And, and again, especially because so many of us have probably been really impacted by the sexual revolutions and all the things that have happened. You know, there's probably a lot of people who haven't led such a you know perfect past. So we have to remember those things as well. Right, exactly. All right. Well, I think we can leave it there. If anyone is interested in finding out more information about our program that we have for middle school and high school students, they can send us an email at jv at .com, or else they can just go to our website too and contact us through the website. You know, we'll always get that information there. Great. And we'll have a link to that email, jv at .com, along with Canabox's other programs and also the tips for talking to your kids about sex book. April Redlinger, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here. I never met anyone, but for the little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town seemed to be empty. I think that was why I attached myself to the queue. And we are back to talk about The Great Divorce, a.k.a. The 17 People You Meet in Heaven. Welcome back, Kara. <laughs> Always good to be here. The Great Divorce was written by C.S. Lewis in the 1940s. Kara, you've read this book, I think, a few more times than I have, right? Yeah, I, I don't want to put a number on it, but yes, I love this book. It's definitely my favorite C.S. Lewis book. Yeah, it was a lot funnier than I remember when I read it for the first time. I feel Lewis has a real knack for levity, and especially in his fiction, more so than his nonfiction. I will admit that I'm biased towards Lewis's fiction works, but... Yeah, I think when people hear C.S. Lewis's fiction works, they think of the Chronicles of Narnia and they think, oh, okay, well, it's kind of a heavy handed allegory for kids. And they don't know about this work of fiction, The Great Divorce, which is definitely more for an adult audience. I mean, it's still a heavy handed allegory. I'll give it <laughs> that. But <laughs> it is eminently readable. And I, yeah. I think it's it's definitely one of the more, I think, like thought provoking fictions in terms of a, a spiritual reading. Like if you wanted to take this as some kind of meditation piece over a retreat weekend or something, I think it would be very well worth your time. Yeah, because he used this as kind of a lab experience for the moral life and for the spiritual life too. Yeah. We are talking about The Great Divorce also because uh, in the month of November, we're reaching the end of Ordinary Time. We're reflecting on and commemorating the dead. And we are preparing to reflect on The Last Judgment, which this book has something to say about. 
So if you have seen, you know, any of those like anthology of C.S. Lewis books, this is the one with the bus on the cover, which doesn't really feature very much in the actual book. It's very small port, but uh, it's essentially you're journeying from what you don't quite know at the beginning is perhaps it's sort of purgatory. It's sort of hell all the way. And you're, you get on the bus and the bus takes you to a sort of entryway into heaven. They call it the Valley of the Shadow of Life, which I thought that was a really neat name for it. That is a great name. So you are in the the valley and it becomes very clear quickly that everybody who was on the bus are sort of thin, transparent ghosts and everything in the valley is bright and hard. So much so that like if they step on the grass, their feet hurt because they're sort of insubstantial. Yeah. And so quickly you start to realize that there are creatures who are there who are not insubstantial and that the whole point of coming there is to be greeted by somebody who is going to help you journey through the valley into actual heaven. And so the entirety of this book is set in this valley. You're not really going anywhere. It's not like a, this book is not about like what happens. This book is more about the people who are there And it's really an exploration of the way that sin blinds us from the ability of accepting God's grace. Yeah. Just to be clear, as like a disclaimer about what this story is and is not meant to accomplish, because C.S. Lewis says it in the preface and in the end of the story of the book itself. It's not meant to be instructive about the real afterlife. He is not claiming that he has any kind of special knowledge about what it's really going to be like, other than that there will be one. Because... There are a lot of free choices in the dramas, the little mini dramas of the story. We don't make choices after death. We're here on earth to make choices. And if there's another place where we can choose yes or no, then there's no point in being here. So he's not claiming that. And he says it's, he describes it as a lens or a dream to help you see these issues more clearly. The Specifically the drama around human choice that takes place in this life, but is kind of hard to see this way. Yeah, and I would just add, I think for the first time I read it, it was probably one of the first times that it was really clear to me the ways in which the choices that we make on earth predispose us to be able to accept that grace. So, you know, I yeah. certainly have friends who kind of maybe have, you know, different sort of theological backgrounds, whether that's, you know, Christian or not, where there can kind of be this sense of, well, God loves everybody. And so, you know, he would heal all in the afterlife. And I, I think for me, this book really was a good exploration of the ways in which God is constantly offering his hand to us. And it's not so much that like, he didn't do enough to show us that he wants us. It's that we make choices that make it difficult to see the hand when it's extended, or it makes it difficult to accept the help when it's offered. Yeah, exactly. And also, just to be clear, if you're hearing this and thinking, well, don't we get a say in what happens to us after death? Yes, but at that point, you don't make choices. What happens to you happens with your free will. It's just that your free will is consistent after death, whereas mm-hmm. in this life, it can be in- inconsistent. Um, that's the <laughs> that's the big difference. So when you will something in the afterlife, you never don't will it. You always will. Mm. With that aside, because we didn't want to dive too much into the theological ramifications of taking this work too seriously. We did want to dive into the moral ramifications of taking this work too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that quote at the beginning is the narrator talking about what it's like in the town where you start out before they go to the valley and see all the all the little vignettes of the ghosts talking to the spirits who are supposed to help guide into heaven. We start out in the town, which is this kind of dingy place that to the narrator sort of resembles his earthly surroundings. So it's not clear yet that the participants are even dead, but they are. This is definitely the afterlife that's made clear later. And he describes this realm where people have built houses, which are mostly empty. And the reason they're mostly empty is because the inhabitants of the town keep building their houses farther and farther apart because they're so bad at getting along with one another and they hate their neighbors so much. To paraphrase some existentialists, my neighbor is hell. But it's hell either way for these people, because he meets one person who visited Napoleon in this place, and Napoleon had built this huge estate, and he just paces back and forth blaming this or that person. And that's what it's like. And the narrator instinctively seeks out company, because he has this kind of nascent desire for communion. I think. And it reminded me of Pope Francis's one point of emphasis that Pope Francis likes to make, especially which he does in Fratelli Tutti, where he talks about our call to communion, our call to eternal life is inherently social. So here's a quote from Fratelli Tutti 277. For us, the wellspring of human dignity and fraternity is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From it, there arises for Christian thought and for the action of the church, the primacy given to relationship to the encounter with the sacred mystery of the other, to universal communion with the entire human family as a vocation of all. So this vocation of all is not something that the residents of the town are eagerly seeking after. Which becomes very clear the second he gets on the bus. Or even before that, when he's standing in line, basically everybody's like getting into fistfights and <laughs> strangely like getting out of line because they're like, well, I don't want to wait in line anymore. It's like, where are you going? <laughs> There's nothing to do here. Yeah, all these people, all these people are like crowding each other in the line. And then some of them voluntarily get out of line. I didn't want to go anyway. And then you get on the bus and you realize there was plenty of room on the bus the whole time. And there was no point in them getting all up in arms about this. Especially because they didn't even know where they were going. This is generally how I feel like amusement parks, period. It's like, we're all going on the same ride. <laughs> Stop jostling. And I think what, what's going on here, early on, you see people not getting along with each other. But once they get to the valley later in the story, they don't really talk to each other anymore. They're just talking to their guides, the spirits that they meet in the valley. Who are all people that they know from yes. their earthly life in some way. Right, right. But who have already gone on this journey, have been to heaven, and are here to help. So they didn't come from the town. So... I think the reason this direction works the way it does has to do with something that Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity, because he talks about the three parts of morality. There's what we think of as public morality and private morality, and then the general direction of human life. And he talks about how a lot of modern people tend to only focus on the public part, what you do that affects other people, as if you can draw that hard of a distinction. So this is from a little bit of mere Christianity. So he talks about the, uh, the three things, harmony between individuals, harmonizing the things inside each individual, and the general purpose of human life as a whole. And then he says, you may have noticed that modern people are nearly always thinking about the first thing and forgetting the other two. And he, and he uses the example of ships sailing in the ocean. Ships sailing in the ocean 
have three corresponding things. There's whether or not they're bumping into each other. That's the first part of morality. Whether or not the engine room and the, you know, the captain knows where he's going. And then which direction all of the boats are sailing in. And people tend to focus on just whether or not the boats are crashing into each other and not whether or not they're functioning properly. But if some boats aren't functioning properly, how can you expect them to not crash into each other? And moreover, if they don't sail in an agreed-upon direction, how can they expect it to not crash into each other? So the three parts of morality do all interplay. The point here is that the first thing you see about the people is their quote-unquote public faults. And then when they get to the valley, that's when you start dealing with their quote-unquote private faults. And one of the spirits even says, there are no private issues. It's speaking in kind of an ultimate sense. This isn't justification for you to go out and stick your nose into everybody's business. But in the last analysis, your actions are not less consequential just because they're private. Well, and even, you know, the interior life is the thing that matters almost the most. Right. That's the thing that is most important to what sort of being you are. Yeah. I thought it was really cool how you you touched on this a little bit at the beginning about the way he treats materiality, like how physical these people are when mm. they get to the valley. Two ways. The one that really jumps out at you at the beginning is what you mentioned when you were talking about how painful the grass was, is that these are not very solid people when they start out. You know, in the common understanding of the afterlife, we think, okay, well, you know, you become a spirit and you're freed from your fleshy prison and you grow beyond matter. That's not a very Catholic way of looking at things, but that is like a common misconception about the afterlife. And Lewis constructs this version of the afterlife totally different. The closer you get to heaven, the more material, the more solid you get and the stronger you are and are able to walk on the grass, which I thought that was that was really neat. And then the second way he does this, which he saves kind of as a twist at the end, not only do you grow more solid, but you also grow bigger. Mm, yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about that until I read it this time. We'll come back to that when we talk about one of the last stories. But yeah, the town they came from, even though it involves residents building houses farther and farther apart. It's like a little crack in the soil of the valley. So it's this tiny place. So when those people like Napoleon were getting farther and farther apart, they were getting farther apart in a confined space, meaning they were shrinking the whole time. It's basically like a like a termite underground yeah. where like almost microscopic termite underground. They say at one point that somebody traversed for years to visit somebody who was on the outer edges. I can't remember if it was, you know, light years. And right. it's also kind of interesting because the expansion outward means that once people have gone out, it makes it even more daunting to come back to the place where you could pick up the bus. Yeah. I will say that as a diehard city lover, it never ceases to entertain me that this is basically suburbia <laughs> and the further and further away you get from the central location, the worse hell is. But <laughs> no offense to people who love the country. It's like basically the for the further out you go, the less likely you are to turn around to try and make the trip to heaven, which I thought was also very interesting. And it, it because part of it too, it becomes more clear that basically the further out you go, it's actually more of a collapsing into yourself. Yeah. And the harder it is to become somebody who then like turns that outside to be able to get outside of yourself, which I thought was like a really poignant idea of sin basically being something that just turns your your efforts inward. Right. 
the opposite of relational. Yeah. So shall we get into uh, the 17 people you meet in heaven? <laughs> or in almost heaven? We're going to focus on five. Yeah. The five most important of the people who you meet in almost heaven. <laughs> so I think we should start off. There's a few people that you meet on the bus. He kind of, you think you start to see that he is illustrating different types of personalities. Yeah. But I think the first major one that we encounter that he is delving into is the theologian. The theologian is met in the valley by a fellow theologian who it becomes clear through their conversation that the ghostly theologian is very committed to not actually finding out truth. And the theologian in heaven, actually, as he became older and older, was far more interested in, is there a God? Is there a truth? Is there reality? Uh, and that, that's pretty much the, I'd say, the sum of their conversation is kind of the idea of somebody who becomes more obsessed with the idea of seeking knowledge and putting forward fancy ideas than they are with the pursuit of actual knowledge, which would be answers and truth. Which, of course, I'm sure this is near and dear to Lewis's heart as, like, an academic. Yeah. (laughs) The dialogue that he puts in the mouth of the theologian feels like he's heard those words spoken by, like, colleagues of his or something. Oh, for sure. I really wonder, like, I don't know Lewis well enough to know if there's, like, a person that this is mapped to, but it sure feels like a real conversation he had. He has a lot of pent-up antipathy for academic types like this. So the theologian in question here, he never wants to close on a final answer to anything. He's always like, well, we don't know that for sure. We always have to, you know, keep our minds open and, you know, be open to new fields of study and this sort of thing. It's pretty childish, uh, isn't it, after all, to just come up with an answer and have that be the end of it? And that's kind of his his approach whenever his former colleague, who is now a spirit, says, well, no, here we are. This is the answer. You are living in the answer right now. And he's still able to kind of hand wave it away. For me, this is less like personally poignant, but I found it to be very resonant with plenty of ecumenical discussions where it's like, well, we don't know the answer to that. It's like, well, but there is an answer. You know, like we, it may be unknowable to us except through divine revelation. I mean, not to like get on a soapbox about like why I love being Catholic, but (laughs) I think that that is one of the beauties of the church there have been 2000 years of people actually seeking an an answer like real answers to real questions you know some things of course we'll only know when we join the beatific vision but there's a lot that has been revealed to us and there's a beauty and also a responsibility in accepting the truth and i think the thing that maybe hits me the most about this person is kind of the way in which if you're not actually seeking the truth, you're sort of avoiding the responsibility of the consequences of that truth. Yeah. Because if there's no truth, then you don't have to do anything with it, or it doesn't require you to make certain choices about how you're going to live your life. And I kind of get where the theologian's coming from, because his whole point is emphasizing the thirst for truth. And he associates an answer with the termination of that thirst. Like the thirst for truth is good, but only insofar as it actually leads you to something. He wants to stay thirsty. And so he's like (laughs) lost sight of the ultimate good that this intermediate good points to and has distorted it to be his end. 
which becomes kind of a recurring theme with a lot of the characters in this book. Yeah, it comes up again with the artist who is so obsessed with the act of painting that they have forgotten what the painting was meant to do, which at first was to essentially glorify God and to show the beauty of his creation. And it actually became reductive when it became about the painting in a complete reversal of the way that a lot of it, you know, I think like this is another one of Lewis's sort of pokes at academia where when like the craft becomes the end, as opposed to a means of expression of something higher. Yeah. With the painter and also with the theologian, their spirit challenges them to give up that thing that they so identify with, whether it's the thirsting for truth or the painting. They have to give those things up in order to progress, to move on. And they both refuse to do it because they've built so much of themselves around just the process, just the journey and not the destination. They just want to stay on the road. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, in both of those characters there's an additional piece of pride where they associate their value with the impact that they're making on other people. So the artist ultimately what drives him to get back on the bus to go back to hell is that he learns that nobody remembers him on earth anymore. He's like no longer famous. And he's like, I must go back. Which like, you're not going back to earth. I have to write a manifesto. Yeah. We must start a journal. (laughs) Be thought leaders. Um, And the same thing is true for the theologian, right? The theologian is like, well, we must must go back and have a symposium and we need to talk about these ideas more. And I have more things to produce, which I, I think was a really subtle way of showcasing that. On the one hand, it's about the art, the process that they're obsessed with. But it's also the value that they attach to it. I think it's a bit of a referendum on the value that people put in their work to define them, as opposed to, you know, both of these, these times the heavenly spirit challenges them to see that like your gift was meant to be glorifying God and it became perverted. These things are very closely intertwined, right? Like it's pride and, you know, we can have a right place of valuing the talents that we have been given. But when we come to value either the output or, you know, like people talking about they value their career and that becomes their identity, that is a real spiritual risk to us to not see that like God is asking us to use those gifts for something else and not just for ourselves. You know, you get to a certain point. I'm trying not to do a Sonny Corleone voice from The Godfather, but I think I have to. Sometimes she gets to a point where you just, you have to say, no more meetings, no more discussions. (laughs) But we are not at that point because we have another meeting to have about this book. So be sure to tune in for our next episode, which will have the second half of our discussion about The Great Divorce. In the meantime, please share this podcast with your friends. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you.